Coming up on Tech Nation, science tells us how we are really driven by our unconscious mind. Yale psychology professor John Barge joins me to talk about, before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do. Then on Tech Nation Health, we look at a radical new treatment to replace human skin following a serious burn. Dr. Denver Lowe, the president and CEO of Polarity TE, tells us how it works and also how a group of doctors left a burn center to bring this new technology worldwide. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Whether we like it or not, we're living in the age of information. And like all change we didn't precisely ask for, can't control and can't stop, we have to learn to make the best of it. That doesn't mean ignoring it. Even if you're willing to turn off your television set, cancel your Netflix, reduce your smartphone to the functionality of a last millennium cell, and swear off Google, you can't avoid the bad. And truly, does anyone really want to go back to driving from one store to the next to see if they have that item in stock? Want to start calling airlines for tickets, hotels for reservations, and scheduling all those things from our smartphones? Withdrawing from the information age isn't going to happen, and there's no bargain we can make to hold it back. The good things about it are just too good, and the downsides? They are more than the irritants of forgetting to charge your phone or your tablet. There are deeper impacts as a result of the age of information, and they're just below the surface. First and foremost is the glut of information swirling everywhere about the state of the world, the nation, and whatever. Speak with any three people, and they each have a different perception of the facts. I've actually done this ever since the Star Report, investigating the President Clinton and Monica Lewinsky episode. Each person somehow received or mistakenly perceived or transmuted in their minds the basic facts. Then each passed along their own version of the facts with great confidence, and that's how misinformation abounds. Add to this deliberately created misinformation, not what we used to call spin, which took the same facts but gave them a different interpretation. We are way beyond spin. Now misinformation is intentionally constructed and delivered as a fact, and then spin comes back into play and takes over from the bad facts. Horrors. How in heaven's name are we supposed to keep it all straight? Well, that's the point. Beyond bad facts, the less we are sure of any facts, the more vulnerable we are to manipulation. We can't change any of these folks, but we can take our own measures. For starters, we can consider the source. Considering the source isn't a popularity contest or one in which we just like their opinions. It's more, does the person or organization giving me this fact have a record of delivering correct facts? If a mistake is made, is it publicly acknowledged? 
Do they have a published policy about checking the facts? Are they in the business of actually trying to get me good information? And that's just a start. The next thing is our opinion filter. Am I listening to an opinion or a fact? Or is this some merging of opinion and fact? And remember, opinion is not a deeper analysis of the facts. It's great when it happens. Is this person giving me more facts that I also have every reason to believe are true, and I can now understand more in order to form my own opinion? Today we have arguments over the basic facts, and there's a cacophony of opinions based on divergent facts not all of which can possibly be true. And we have some people simply adding accelerant to the media mess. You can do it. You can be smart about the information age. Remember, media today drives perception, not truth. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Yale psychology professor John Barge talks about the power of our unconscious mind and what science tells us today. And on Tech Nation Health, a new treatment for replacing human skin following a serious burn. I'll speak with Dr. Denver Lowe, the president and CEO of Polarity TE. Dr. John Barge is the author of Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. I asked him, what's the difference between our subconscious mind and our unconscious mind? Is there really a difference? That is just a matter of personal preference. I think these terms have been used interchangeably for so long that um, we've been fairly sloppy about, uh, you know, being specific about what each term means. When I was younger and in the days before uh, the research was rolling, people wouldn't use the word unconscious because it had all the baggage of Freud attached to it. So anytime you said something was unconscious, everyone thought about the Freudian unconscious, and it got in the way of understanding what you really were talking about. So my field used the word nonconscious a lot, and it was like punting, you know, (laughs) avoiding the issue. A colleague once said to me on a visit, Uh, from Harvard, she said, you know, John, we should take back that word. There's no reason why Freud owns that word. It was used by Darwin. It was used by Schopenhauer. It was used by people before Freud. And why do we have to go with with his definition? So that's why I I chose to take the word back, especially since Darwin used it and other people used it um, before Freud. So subconscious generally means something that has become uh, started out conscious, like let's say when you're driving or typing, and with a lot of experience, it goes in these less and less conscious intention and control and becomes 
sublimated, right? It, it can operate automated, below consciousness. Yeah, yeah, automated. Yeah. That's another word that we can use, automated or automatic. So there's lots of words around. You need to be careful and, and define right off the bat what it is you're talking about. Lots of people who at, at best might have a passing interest in psychology, but almost everybody, they first came into the idea of the unconscious with Sigmund Freud. That was quite a while ago. That was. What did he get right? What did he get wrong? Well, he was a, a pioneer and a genius and a scholar, and what he got right was the idea that there are these influences on us that are outside of our awareness that we don't know about and can affect us in profound ways. If you stop there, that's that's fantastic, and that was a huge breakthrough. Uh, what he got wrong was he insisted on generalizing from his mentally ill case studies, mentally ill people who were in the hospital who had real problems. He insisted on generalizing his observations from them as being true of everybody in the world. And that was a huge leap from a sort of an abnormal population to normal functioning. And the person, Pierre Genet, who was doing the same kind of research at the time in Paris while Freud was in Vienna, uh, was finding the same things Freud was, but insisted and had a big fight with Freud that said, no, we should not generalize from these people to everybody in the world. They're different. They have uh, issues. Their mind is not functioning the way everybody else's is. Uh, but Freud won the day. Well, science can be fickle, and the study of the unconscious was not always respected, not always pursued, and it just wasn't Freud and Piaget. When did we start to... Uh, Fancy studying the unconscious. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it, it actually, a uh, hundred years ago, it was consciousness that was taboo. Consciousness was said to be non-existent and non-causal by the behaviorist. John Watson and then B.F. Skinner after him uh, had a behaviorist manifesto that said uh, conscious thought and conscious causes were unreliable. They couldn't be replicated. They didn't have methods to, to study them. And so let's just get rid of them from explaining why people do the things they do. And they went to behaviorism, which is just the outside stimulus affects your responses like you were a, a rat or a pigeon. And so until the 1960s and 70s, it was consciousness and conscious thought that was taboo. And then we have what we call a cognitive revolution in the 60s and 70s. And suddenly we're able to study for the first time conscious thought and, and thinking and, uh, and memory and all the higher mental functions. And then the pendulum swung the entire other way to where I started in the 1970s, uh, the belief we were taught that everything a person does, they are consciously aware of and they intend. So what I did was say, well, that's great, but let's test that assumption. Everyone just assumed it, that you needed, you were always aware and intended everything you did. And I just wanted to see, well, let's see what consciousness really is for. Instead of everything, let's see what can be done without it, which will, by a method of subtraction, give us maybe what it really is for. Well, that was one of my first questions. Once you recognize there's an unconscious, how how do you possibly go after testing? Yeah, that's that's a, an art that form. That started you on your <laughs> yeah, career. Yeah, <laughs> that actually did. That's that's a, 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 a vein of gold in the mind that I've just kept mining ever since because we started with baby steps. We wanted to see if people were influenced in their impressions by information even presented subliminally that they, they weren't aware of, and they were. So here's information that they weren't aware of influencing whether they like somebody or not. We moved from there to attitudes and whether you think things are good or bad and found that those attitudes become active in your mind automatically, very fast, without having to stop and think about how you feel about these things in a matter of a quarter of a second. So now we have attitudes and feelings and evaluations of good and bad. 
We moved from there to motivations to show that uh, perhaps motivations can be triggered by, by outside things that you weren't aware of, and then they operate to guide to guide you. And we found that people become more achieving if they incidentally see words related to achievement or not, and they score higher on tests. And we pursued it and pursued it behavior as well. Uh, and it seemed like pretty much everything could be done unconsciously as well as consciously. Uh, and it really reduced the, um, the scope of what we really have to have consciousness for. I think one of the big discoveries for me reading your book is that just because you immediately express some rational explanation for why you did something or had a reaction, that doesn't mean that's why you're doing it. Your entire experience is what you consciously know, but that's not actually what your experience is. That that uh, we make we make sense of what we do after we do it, and we have very plausible reasons for what must have caused us to do what we did, and they're often wrong. The the work of Michael Gazanica back in the seventies and eighties with split brain patients, uh, he would hypnotize them or he'd give them cues to, for example, get up out of the chair and leave the room, and they didn't have any idea that that was going on. And, 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 and split brain patients oh, are epileptics. They used to do. I don't know if they. I don't know if they still do it, but. Uh, uh, a severing of the corpus callosum that connects the two hemispheres that reduces the reverberation of activity that causes epile epileptic seizures. And it used to be that's what they did. And he drove around New England in the late 70s with a colleague in a GMC uh, motorhome uh, and testing the various uh, split-brain patients uh, in, in the New England area. Um, would give them sort of uh, cues without their being aware of them to the right hemisphere, let's say. Uh, and then they would act on them. They would get up out of their chair and walk out of the room. Or uh, a woman would go down on the floor on her hands and knees. And they were immediately so facile about coming up with reasonable explanations for the bizarre things they were doing. Such as, oh, I need to get a drink of water as they walk past the uh, the doctor, or oh, I must have lost an earring down here somewhere as as she's walking her, you know, on her hands and knees on the floor, and Kazanaga uh, was struck by the fact that we are so quick to understand and make sense out of what we're doing after the fact, but uh, these are impulses coming from somewhere else that we never intended to do in the first place. So he was cueing one side of the brain. Remember, their eyes would be split. One one eye would go to one side, one ear would go to one side, and similarly with the other. So the the part that took in the cue wasn't the part that was making the reason why they so rationally did it. Absolutely. And, and it was never never really it's lined up. It's just like up. the priming studies we did after that. And, and his really important point and groundbreaking point was that we experience it as if we did mean to do it. And we come up with an explanation that makes sense almost immediately after we do it. So the feeling that we meant to do it often is just an illusion. I'm also struck by the fact that I always say to everyone and I say to myself, now let's remember why we did this. No rewriting <laughs> history. We rewrote it at the moment we said it. <laughs> Absolutely. We're good at that. We're good at that. We're good at that. Which leads me to ask about, there were, this was repeated in several areas here, about, okay, you're going to go in, you're going to sell a product, you're going to sell yourself, you're going to sell a concept oh, there's a lot more to it, whether they're going to be receptive or not, other than it's a really good idea and you've got a good PowerPoint. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, one thing that really matters is how what you want a person to do matches up with their own goals, because that's how we evaluate whether something is worth our while or not. And sometimes we don't even realize the goals that are operating that cause us to like or not like or to do or not to do. Um, you know, I, I play this app, um, this game called Candy Crush. I know a lot of people play this game, but it's a... Okay, it's I confess. A, yeah. Eh. Well, I don't know, but I, I'm 
level 1700 I played so much. My wife is even 2000-something. I mean, we play it way too much. But there's this le- – when you're stuck on a level and you really want to beat it and you've been on it for weeks and you're just so close and you maybe one thing away – and then it offers you the in-app purchase, right, for extra moves. And it's like five ninety nine for five more moves. And like, why would you spend good money on this dumb game just to get another little, you know, little candy piece? Uh, but at the time, your goal is, is it's so important to you. And your goal is driving, yes, 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 do it, do it. We want to beat this level. And it's so important. And you do it. And it's, oh, you feel so good. And then you get the bill, right? And then the next day, you see you your checking account. You do it? Yeah. You actually I, pay. Sometimes. The Yale professor actually has paid. Yes, I have. Yes. <gasps> Oh, I swear my wife's goodness. never done it. She's very, very good about that. But I have done it. And now, did I admit you think it. to go on the internet and put Candy Crush and the and the level number to get a few hints uh, for free? You know, there are cheat things on the internet they're, to do that. I mean, I, they're not cheat. They're yeah. sharing. Oh, they're sharing information. information. We help free. each other. Yes, they're free. You still can't quite get through it. <clears throat> you know, you have to. Yeah, yeah. I used to do that with Angry Birds, but um, I've moved oh, really? on to. I didn't Candy like the Crush. Angry Birds. Yeah. What is it now? I finally have the psychology. Professor in front of me, <laughs> what is it? And of course, part of this has to be the unconscious. What draws us to games like this? We're adults. It's, we it's, have stuff to do. It's a flow experience. It's just something mindless that takes your, you know, relaxes you because you don't have to think. You just do, and re, you react. And it's, you know, achievement. If you finish it, you feel proud. You feel pride. Goal. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a challenge, and um, you know, something. Generally, they make these games where we can handle them. They're not too impossible. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Yale psychology professor John Barge, the director of the Acme Laboratory at Yale. He's the author of Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. This whole business of the unconscious, it's driving each of us. And in the chapter, Be Careful What You Wish For, and boy, you grew up and you never knew when somebody was going to turn to you and say, Be Careful What You Wish For. I was reminded how powerful goals were, you know, conscious goals. And at the same time, what's driving those goals, many drivers, can be unconscious. Absolutely. We have really strong evolved goals for survival, for avoiding disease, for example. Uh, We have personal goals. We want to form relationships. We want to bond with other people. Uh, We want to achieve. We want to uh, gain wealth. We want to acquire. And these things uh, are are just ingrained in us. We don't realize sometimes they have big effects. For example, if people are hungry, we know this, right? If you're hungry, don't go shopping at the grocery store because you'll buy way too much food. It's as if we think we're going to be this hungry forever. So we have to buy enough food to satisfy this starving hunger we have uh, forever and ever. And that's a big mistake. We, We spend too much. But this is a general uh, acquisition goal. It comes from way back over our, our human history. And that leads to people, when they're hungry, to also buy more electronics, to also buy, buy more books, also buy more clothes. They uh, go to Target if they're hungry, and they buy more at Target. Now, they're not, not going to eat it, but they're, they're acquiring. They're in this sort of ancient mode of acquiring uh, resources uh, and not realizing the effect it can have on things that are totally unrelated to the, the, the real state of hunger, for example. Now, most of us dream, and many of us remember our dreams. I certainly do. And at the end of the introduction, you talk about your encounter 10 years ago with a certain green-eyed alligator. This was a dream you have, and you talk about this in, in the book. What do we know about dreams, and what was your dream about? 
Well, in general, there's a whole, there's a wonderful collection of these uh, uh, dreams in a little book called The Creative Process, a little paperback by a man named Brewster Gieselin. It begins with G-H. Uh, and in a, it's a collection of all these historic times when breakthroughs were made, like by Einstein or, or Kekulé and other people, when they were doing something entirely different than working on the problem. They were shaving or they were dreaming. And there's some famous dreams that give the answer to a puzzle, to a, like Kekulé, the benzene ring uh, uh, theory he came up with because he was dozing after trying to solve this problem for so long. And he saw in the fireplace uh, a ring of snakes eating each other's tails, and they were on fire, and they were rotating in a circle. And that's the structure of benzene. And it came to him in the dream, and he'd never had this idea before. But where did it come from? It came from his uh, mind, his unconscious working on this problem in the background that he'd been working on it consciously for a long time. And my, my alligator dream was very similar because I had been working on this puzzle uh, for a long time. And I w was given the answer to it one day by basically an alligator in a very short dream I had. So what was my dream about? My dream was, uh, the issue was, uh, how can uh, processes in the human mind become unconscious without lots of practice? We, we have a model for many years that driving and typing and other kinds of skills, if you do it often enough, a lot of practice becomes sublimated down and you can do them basically unconsciously. But that was the model by which all unconscious processes were supposed to, uh, how they were created. And yet the research was showing the children, five-year-olds, even infants, have these same kinds of unconscious or automatic processes, and they didn't have any experience. So how can you have it where all this experience is needed, something starts out conscious, becomes unconscious with lots of practice? And my, in my dream, I was in the Everglades. And I was very tired because my daughter was maybe seven months old and I was uh, raising her and uh, I was just worn out. I, I got her in her crib. She never wanted to take a nap, but I hoped she would. And I went and fell down face first. It was October. The beautiful fall leaves in, in New Haven were right out my window. I remember them really well. I fell down in my bed, went to a deep sleep immediately had this dream. My dream was I was in the Everglades and I was walking on one of those wooden walkways they have through the swamp and an alligator was floating along next to me on the right. And I actually had been to the Everglades once. So this was a memory of uh, sort of a memory uh, of when I was there. The alligator would float along as I walked and then it would go a little ahead of me. And then suddenly it flipped over and I woke up immediately. I had the answer to my puzzle that I've been working on for 10 years. The alligator was telling me, you have it backwards, flip it. It's the unconscious first and not the conscious first becoming unconscious. Unconscious processes guided us through evolutionary history long before we developed conscious abilities, which was fa fairly late in our evolutionary history, as shown by the cave paintings and other kinds of symbolic communication that were only a re relatively recent um, occurrence in human history. Before that, we had all these old unconscious systems that guided us in adaptive ways and allowed us to survive, and they were filtered through natural selection, so they really were on our side. But I had had it the other way around, that everything had to be conscious first. The alligator was telling me, flip it. It's the unconscious first, you dummy. And then conscious stuff came along. And then we can use consciously, we can use the processes that were always there unconsciously. And that's why in the, the studies since then, when you do brain imaging studies, you find if something is done unconsciously, it uses the same brain regions as when that thing is done consciously. It's one brain, not two separate brains, unconscious and conscious, same brain being used consciously or used unconsciously. And that's exact, that was the insight that ever since then, everything fell into place at that point. And I thank that alligator um, that, that 
that um, that alligator in the Everglades for for having that revel. It was an incredible feeling of relief and insight, and it just it slammed me. It was it was something I'll never forget. How powerful um, that dream was to me. I remember when I was a graduate student in mechanical engineering, and the uh, uh, the old professor came up to me, and he goes, I heard about you, that we have this girl. And I was like, oh, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I put up with lots of stuff. Oh, and uh, that was the least of my problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was talking to me, and he goes, well, that sounds good, and that sounds good. And he goes, let me give you a tip. And I said, sure, mm-hmm. I'll take anything. And uh, he said... When you go to bed at night, think about one of the problems you're trying to solve because you like a lot of programming stuff. But we like to wire things and we like to build things and design things and lay them out. Because think about some one. Just pick a portion of it that you can't quite figure out. It's at the edge. He says, when you wake up, it'll either be solved or partially solved. I spent the rest of my career doing that. And you'd wake up in the morning and sure enough, it's the same Kind of thing. Absolutely. I guess. Uh, you know, I, I talk in the in this uh, the unconscious never sleeps at the end of the the book. That um, That's Norman, a chapter. It's a chapter. A chapter, yeah. a chapter at the end of before you know it. And, and Norman Mailer gave that advice. Norman Mailer said when he was writing uh, that he gave assignments to his unconscious. Basically, that this is the material I want to work with tomorrow morning. Get it prepared for me. And so while he slept or he went out to eat or he did something else the rest of the day, it would be ready the next day. I actually used that too, like you did. I used it when I was writing this book. And I would, uh, I could have just stopped. I got a chapter done. I could have just stopped and picked it up the next chapter the next day. But I knew that that trick, that advice. So every time I would finish a chapter, I would start thinking about the next chapter, even though I was going to take a break and do something else that day. I would start looking at my notes and getting my mind. So this is the next assignment. And so by the next morning, it was much easier to get right into it and put it in the right order and organize it and start writing right away. It was really helped me write the book. So that was your unconscious, not sleeping, doing work, but it wasn't making you more tired. Not at all. No, no, I was using the downtime. Uh, this was like behind the scenes uh, while my conscious mind was resting. Uh, it was doing things on its own, just like when you're asleep when you dream. It's it's working, but, it, you know, dreaming doesn't make you, unless it's a terrible dream. Your heart dream. keeps beating. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't breathing. make you more tired. Right, yeah, right. exactly. Fascinating. Right. Now, I, I really want to get to time. We humans have made a big deal about time. Mm-hmm. What time is it? What time was it? What time is it going to be? And we require all this technology to get down to what time is. But you say the mind exists simultaneously in the past, the present, and the future. you got to explain that. Okay. We're, first of all, so focused in the present on what's in front of us that we think whatever we're doing, the reason for it is right in front of us. It's what's on our mind right now. So if I, as has happened recently, uh, if I'm angry at my dog for, like, running through my leg and uh, being rambunctious, and we have a pug named Edgar, and Edgar's, like, 25 pounds of fury, and he, only two years old, he's a little rambunctious. He runs right through my leg, and, and I just had knee surgery, so I was like, ow, and I get mad at Edgar. Well... I really get mad at Edgar, and I even give him a little slap on the rump, which I hardly ever do because we're really good buddies. And my wife looks at me and says, you're feeling really angry right now. And I see what she's saying because I'm taking 
uh, some steroids to help this knee heal. And I do know that these make you feel a little more edgy, maybe a little more roid rage or some kind of anger. And I see what she's saying, but I'm still, no, I know that may have influenced me, but I, Edgar deserved it. He deserved to get yelled at. He was, and of course, that's silly. Even knowing these effects, it's hard to shake the idea that what you're aware of is what caused your reaction. And when I was aware of what he did and that caused it, not anything else. The mind is in the present. I'm speaking with Yale psychology professor John Barge, the director of the ACME Laboratory at Yale. He's the author of Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation, BioTechNation, and TechNation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on TechNation Health, a breakthrough technology in the treatment of burns. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Yale psychology professor John Barge, the author of Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. We'd been talking about the mind's perception of time. The mind is in the present. The mind's dealing with what's going on right now. But these needs, these drives from the past, from your evolutionary history, right? All of our evolutionary history for survival and safety and other things are operating. For reproduction, for mating, for being attractive are operating. You've got your hidden past from your early childhood. The, whether you were bonding and attached to your parents at a very early age, that influences your relationships and your friendships the rest of your life. You know, they've tracked people uh, who are um, uh, at one year old uh, to see how attached they are to their mother. And now they've been tracking those same people. They know how attached they were at age one. Now, how many friends did they have in grade school? How many, how'd they do in high school? Uh, How long did their relationships last in their 20s? How often do they break up? And, And by knowing how attached they were to their mother at age one predicts all of those things. 
people who are securely attached at age one don't break up as much in their 20s. And uh, they're more trusting of other people and not uh, breaking up relationships f fast, too fast, or too easily. And that's all stuff that we have no memory for. That's hidden from us because we none of us have any memory of the first three or four years of our life. So we don't know that's influencing us. Our past is influencing us in the present. And our goals in the future are influencing how we see things right now. If we uh, have a goal right now to, uh, to uh, study and get good grades, uh, if you list your best friends, you'll tend to list those you study with. And if you have a goal right now to relax and have fun, you'll tend to list who your best friends are. They'll be the ones you, have, you party with. So your goals change who your best friends are. I mean, these things are all operating at the same time, but really we're focused on the present. Think only that matters to us. Well, Malcolm Gladwell and Blink talked about you, talked about <laughs> yeah. lots of stuff, but it's like you got, you know, your gut reaction and your intuition and all that. When should we trust our intuition and when shouldn't we? Can we tell? That's a very good question. And it was the hardest chapter uh, for me to write in the book. Uh, it's because there is not a clear yes or no easy answer. And I know everyone wants an easy answer. I would love an easy answer. But the question is, it depends, and it's nuanced. There are times when you can trust your gut and times when you shouldn't. And I try to come up with some rules about, you know, basic, easy rules to when you can or can't. Uh, if it's a matter of your personal preferences, for example, music or food or tasting things or art, things like that, you can trust your gut because that basically is the way you really feel. And the more you think about it, you actually move away from your real feelings and the choices you make are not as satisfying later on. You regret them more than if you just make them uh, based on your gut about people, we can trust our gut if we see people in action. If we see people do, interacting with others for about 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a thin slice of, of their life, we actually are pretty good about predicting them and their behavior in the future, how good a teacher they'll be, how good a therapist they'll be, how good of anything they'll be. Just need a little seconds 15 seconds. In fact, it goes down to six seconds even is, is pretty good. But 30 seconds, 15 seconds is all we really need. For example, students um, uh, rate up their teacher at the end of the year, their professor and student evaluations after a whole year. Well, they showed a 15 or 30 second clip of that professor uh, to other people and had them rate how good a teacher that person was. And those really correlated with what the students said based on a whole semester's worth of experience with that teacher. Where we go wrong is if we're basing it on a photograph. So you look at Grumpy Cat. Grumpy cat looks really grumpy, man, but it's a cat. It's not grumpy. <laughs> you know, it just looks really grumpy. And people can look like that. And people can, uh, we can think, oh, they're this and they're that just from their face. And we're, it's not diagnostic at all. And yet we're so sure we're right. Over evolutionary time, we didn't have photographs. You know, what we did have was people doing something dynamically for 15 or 30 seconds. We could come up with an appraisal, and it's actually pretty accurate. But we're fooled by photographs, and we're fooled to think this person has this kind of personality or not. I don't know if you remember the movie Home Alone, Old yes. Man Marley. You know, that guy next door with the white beard and hair, and everyone thought he was a murderer and had bodies in the basement and had all these horrible stories just based on the way he looked. He turns out to be the sweet old guy and met the church scene at the end at Christmas time and, uh, you know, missed his granddaughter. And, and it was really touching. But it, he was a totally different person than that first impression gave just from the face. So we're also, unfortunately, we, we have a tribal background. We have in-groups and out-groups. And uh, back in the day, in the Middle Ages, if there were different-looking people uh, with different skin and different kinds of uh, language and all that on horseback at your village gate, 
that was not good news. You know, that was Attila and his friends, you know, or somebody coming to attack your, your village. And uh, so we, we tend to not trust and like people who are dissimilar to us. And that's for very good long-term evolutionary reasons. But in a modern society, when we're all together now, we can't really trust our gut when it comes to feelings about people who are different from us, who are, you know, physically different or skin color different or, or whatever. So the rule there is give people a chance. You know, especially when it involves seconds. other people. See them in action. <laughs> give, them a, give them a chance and don't make judgments until, until you do that. You know, it's funny. Uh, you actually, I think, explained something, actually a set of things that happened to me recently. <laughs> this is a person, shall not be identified, uh, well-known in the media, you know, although not a media person, um, and happened to be in a place where this person came on stage and was interacting with another person. And together they were having kind of a fireside chat. Uh And almost immediately (laughs) I took a dislike to this person. I was like, where did that come from? Where did that come from? I'm like, I don't think so. I don't know. Later that night I was there with my friends and they were like, "What, what are you talking about? How could you be? I don't know. The very next day, we found out that this person had really pulled something right before they went on stage that would mean, if I knew that, you can't be my friend. You know, you can't be my colleague. I have to kind of this. And, I, you know, it's like clearly seeing the person in person and interact. You know, I was just a member of the audience. Clearly, there was information there. And I I was like saying, uh, this is the reason maybe. And this is, I didn't really have a reason. And I was like, Amazing. maybe I'm jealous. I mean, I was like coming up without anything I could right. think of. But you saw them in action. But I saw them in action. And, and I think that's one of the powers of your book is the sense of know thyself as a lead. You're reading this. You're seeing the examples. And you don't just say, well, that's very interesting. I mean, you're like, wait a minute. I see this in my own life. Yeah. And yeah. you finally kind of flip it. Maybe you're right or wrong. But that's the kind of thing that says these are these are guidances yeah. that you can find in your own life that actually work for you. Yeah. Think about it. That, that sense you had about that person, you know, back in the day, you know, we had to be right. And especially about people who didn't have our interests at heart. You know, it was a life or death situation. I mean, they've actually looked at um, anthropologists, at prehistoric uh, men and women, and, uh, and they actually come to a conclusion that one out of three men in prehistoric times, males, were murdered. One out of three. That's how they died, what? by murder. Now, not as much for women, but the men, one out of three died by the hand of another human being. So in terms of natural selection and adaptation, it really meant a big, it was a big deal to know if somebody was your friend or foe. And we do have that sense. And that is a gut reaction, but it's one that was filtered through and shaped by natural selection over millions of years. Now, in these days where any number of powerful or formerly powerful men are being taken to task for sexual harassment, I was surprised to learn of a 1993 study by University of Illinois professor Louise Fletcher, who studied the sexual harassment cases which had come before the Supreme Court, and she found that fully 75% of the accused harassers did not know or realize that they were doing anything wrong. This came out back when the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas sexual harassment issue was raised when he was being considered for the Supreme Court and the Senate testimony of Anita Hill, uh, his former intern, uh, who was then uh, became a law professor at University of Oklahoma. And this started a lot of people, including myself, interested in what are the causes of sexual harassment. There was a flurry of research there in the 90s on this. 
Louise Fitzgerald is a uh, professor, I think, in the law school at Illinois when she wrote this, but she examined the case history in the Supreme Court cases of sexual harassment. Her own assessment of the cases, in her opinion, looks like to her that 75% of the, of the ma- males, mainly males, uh, did not realize they were doing anything wrong. And that wasn't just the men saying, oh, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. This was her opinion uh, based on the testimony and based on their, their statements like, I, you know, and, and here it came down to basically this. They thought they were acting towards the woman involved as if anyone would who's attracted to another woman, a man attracted to a woman, and they do these flirtation, smiling kinds of things, and they thought, that's normal behavior. Why is this anything wrong? They didn't realize the effect that their power had, both on her acquiescence and feeling like you better go along because you might lose your job or not get promoted, and you, know, you need the job, you need the money. That's part of it. But the other part of it was why did they not realize the effect their their power had uh, on on their behavior? And so we started doing studies where we uh, had people uh, given power or not or uh, put in context, like a powerful context, like sitting behind the professor's desk in a in a, a university office instead of the student desk, the rickety chair in front of the you know the nice desk, and just incidentally have them sit in these two chairs. People sitting in the powerful chair were much less concerned with what other people thought. They were expressed more racist opinions. They didn't really care what people thought. The people in the other chair were more careful about what other people thought on these scales. And then we put them in a situation where we triggered power by just words having to do with power uh, in a very innocuous uh, sentence completion test. Uh, And we had people come into the study who were prone to be sexual harassers. There's a scale actually called the likelihood of sexual harassment scale. We selected those people and, and people who not. And then we had them in a study with an, uh, another uh, uh, student who was a, a woman, uh, and she wasn't extremely attractive or made out to be unattractive or attractive. She was just an average student. And then after that was over, we took them in separate rooms and we asked them lots of questions, including how attractive did you think the other person in the study was? Well, it turns out that the sexual harassers, if power wasn't triggered, if the idea of power wasn't triggered, didn't think she was attractive at all. They actually thought she was on the unattractive side of the scale. But in the condition where they had power activated, now they saw her as attractive. So the same woman is attractive if you have power over her than if you don't have power over her, which the, 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 the message here for sexual harassment in the workplace or when you have positions of power over somebody is that you might think you're attracted to this woman because you know, she's, uh, you're working with her, but it's because of your power over her that you feel that way. You would not be attracted to that same woman if you were sitting next to her in a cafe. Beside the fact that we're talking about the unconscious, your conscious thoughts do matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's why we have them. I mean, we, we have both conscious and unconscious kinds of thoughts. We wouldn't um, have uh, conscious thoughts if they just duplicated what happened unconsciously and vice versa. They do different things. One wonderful thing about um, our conscious thinking ability, besides being able to communicate with other people and pass knowledge down through the generations, which is what we do, and you don't see any other animal uh, doing that on on our planet, Uh, that's what the cave paintings were. The cave paintings were trying to uh, record and and pass on knowledge to the, the succeeding generations. That was the start of it. So conscious thoughts allow us to transform the world. They, they allow us to uh, feel better emotionally. They allow us to uh, regulate our emotions. So if something really bad happens to us, we all have this uh, trick that we use, and it works really well. We always think about people who have it worse off. 
you know, there are people who have it worse off, so you don't feel so bad because at least it's not as bad as those people. I should count my blessings, even though this bad thing happened. And what you're doing is you're transforming the situation in a way that makes it easier to deal with. That's a wonderful trick of conscious thoughts. And rationalization is another one, unfortunately. And we can always rationalize why we don't need to exercise today, or maybe we don't need to start our diet today, or maybe we rationalize other things we really want to do with some excuse reason. But, um, you know, conscious thought is great, but it, it, it has its pros and has its cons. Now, you're a respected professor at Ivy League University at Yale. You're at the peak of your game, your academic and research game. You've confessed that you, you know, you play Candy Crush. And, and you continually in the book reference Led Zeppelin and Jefferson Airplane and song titles, uh, your days as a college DJ or you're in high school at the college radio station and cartoons like The Roadrunner and Wiley E. Coyote, or I guess Wiley Coyote. Coyote. And uh, so so my last question is, it turns out that your stint in high school at the college public radio station, turns out didn't ruin your academic and career prospects. Not at all. No, it was it was fantastic. You know, a lot of people go into fraternities or sororities when they go to college. And the radio station was my fraternity or sorority. It was the place I hung out. I was there. I was the nighttime DJ from nine to three in the morning, that kind of thing uh, for many years. Um, I was a townie. I grew up in that town in, in Champaign, Illinois. So when everyone else went back to Chicago for the breaks and Thanksgiving, Christmas, summertime, I was there at the station. Sometimes I did t- uh, f- uh, 24 hours straight on the air because there was no one else around. Uh, and I uh, had some dreams after that, too, when you're that tired, some lucid dreams after that. But it was a fantastic experience. And I start, I kept it up when I went to uh, I, all the way through college. And then when I went to graduate school, I worked at stations, uh, uh, jazz stations and rock stations in the Ann Arbor area. Uh, in Michigan, I even went to Salt Lake City and worked on several stations uh, doing jazz shows and news shows at uh, the public stations at the University of Utah. So I had a wonderful 10 years uh, back in the day, and um, and, it, and uh, I really miss it. I, I love being on the radio and seeing the studios nowadays to sort of catch up on what's happened. And um, But it was, uh, you know, some of the best years of my life. Well, welcome back. You know, you're always welcome on Thank Technation. you very much. <laughs> My guest today is Dr. John Barge. The book is Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. It's published by Touchstone. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. The World Health Organization reports that worldwide there are 180,000 deaths each year caused by burns, with well over 10 million burns requiring hospital and emergency room attention. Today on Tech Nation Health, we start our story in the ER of Johns Hopkins University Medical Center in the burn unit, truly a humanly challenging place. Dr. Denver Lowe is the president and CEO of Polarity TE. 
No, absolutely. It's uh, it's a sad place to be. And, you know, what the sad part about it is, is that there's essentially one central problem that a lot of these patients need, and that's skin. And if you begin to actually get the patient skin, their own skin back on them, you can actually change uh, the direction of their course or their outcome. You can really save someone's life by providing something as simple as skin back to them. Now, what were you doing there and what are you doing here? No, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so I was uh, a physician in training in the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Johns Hopkins. It was an amazing place and I love it and I've always wanted to maintain my relationship uh, with them. They're a great hospital system and their burn unit is amazing. Uh, while I was there uh, practicing, I began to realize uh, that when I looked across uh, these clinical fields, physicians were beginning to sort of reach a terminal velocity. And what I mean by that is you can only see so many patients at any given time. You can only throw so many stitches at any given moment. You can only see or treat a variety of patients in a burn unit uh, with the amount of space that you have. And I began to think, look, no matter how hard I try, and if I try to use the technology that I'd already sort of patented in a clinical setting, there would be restraints just naturally from being in academics and also from just sheer numbers and quantity. And so we were given the opportunity to actually go and start a public biotech company based off of our platform technology. And that was an opportunity that myself and a group of physicians that also left Johns Hopkins, including the Johns Hopkins burn director, to go and say, look, let's change the way regenerative medicine works. Let's change the type of products that actually exist. And let's get skin back onto burn patients as quickly as we can in an autologous, meaning from the patient for the patient, homologous setting, meaning skin for skin, bone for bone. We're not trying to trick or coax some other cell into becoming skin. It's a way that we process it that allows skin to propagate in a biologically sound manner to get it back onto those patients to fix that essential one issue. They need their skin. And so that was the opportunity that was given to us, and we ended up leaving and starting this biotech company. Now, let me ask you this. Most people would think that going through med school and going through the grind of, of everything that follows through all the residency, that you wouldn't have time to breathe, but you had time to invent something and patent it. <laughs> so that's sort of interesting in and of itself, Denver. Um, what is it that you invented? So I did a program called an MD-PhD program, medical doctor and then a PhD in biochem cell molecular biology. I did it at Georgetown University, and I worked in the Intestinal Transplant Institute. So I did have a lot of time to sort of do research. And as I was doing research for intestinal transplantation, I was sort of uh, told by one of my mentors, don't describe things that can happen in systems, but describe what actually does. And I began to sort of look at sort of historical data across medicine and began to realize that sort of the greatest discoveries that have sort of ever been made uh, for medicine in general across humankind are the realization of reality. You look at antibiotics, we realize something. You look at the uh, hypotheses and the factors that led Einstein to something like relativity. He discovered something that did exist, and he described it in a way that now sounded like it was a real discovery. But he, he basically stumbled across something like this. The same type of thing is true with regenerative medicine. And what led me to this is that I spent a lot of time on microscopes looking at the way that tissues sort of propagate, evolve, migrate, differentiate, and began to realize that tissues don't act in what we call singularities. Even though regenerative medicine has sort of been focused on that, they focused on this idea that a single stem cell will regenerate a tissue. 
a single growth factor or a single drug will regenerate a tissue, or a single type of sort of polymeric complex scaffold, nanospun, nanoparticle fiber, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, 3D printed, will create new tissue. It doesn't work that way, and it never did in biology. So I began to sort of look at the way that the tissues worked and said, I think that if we actually use something that I've termed now aggregate theory, meaning an aggregate of cells that naturally sort of occur in your own tissue, and you begin to process them in a simple, different way, you can allow them to propagate and develop full thickness, hierarchically organized, functionally polarized tissues that grow things like skin, with all of the layers, epidermis, dermis, hypodermis, hair follicles, appendages, but also bone, cortical cancellous interfaces. Uh, if you look at things like cartilage or muscle or even hollow or solid organs, they all regenerate in this sort of similar manner where they utilize a stem cell niche that is supported by supportive cellular entities. So you need like a neighborhood That's exactly of right. biological entities. Yep. And you give them that and you give them, you feed them whatever they need to eat. Right. No, you're completely right. <laughs> then they'll start growing. But right. don't think you're going to take just one and hope it's going to. Yep. Yeah. And so that's kind of what you figured that, out. That's exactly right. And that's sort of what our platform technologies have been based off and the patents have sort of begun to sort of develop out is that just like you said, it's a group of cells. It's a neighborhood. It's a village. It's also the interface that they have with the extracellular matrix, with the growth factors, with the other cell that's touching it. They begin to command the way that stem cells and progenitors turn over, differentiate, redirect themselves, and actually create tissue polarity, hence the name, the company, polarity. So what you're hoping to do then is to go get someone in a burn unit. They have some cells somewhere that have not been affected. You harvest those. I don't know how many you have to harvest. Mm -hmm. You've got to harvest, you gotta harvest a, a group. Yep. And then you're going to grow skin, get it back onto that patient. That's a great question. And that's actually been sort of the model from some of the other companies that have been out there. And frankly, it just hasn't been able to regenerate full thickness skin. So you're absolutely right. We do take some specimen from the patient itself, typically in small areas that no one ever really sees. But rather than culture it over a period of time, you actually send it to us in what looks almost like a box. If you had received a Microsoft Surface or a, an iMac, you open it up. It's an all-inclusive box that allows a provider to collect or harvest that tissue. Put it in the slot. Right. Slot, slot, Exactly. Slot. And it's set up in a way that it's all-inclusive so that essentially it could be a provider who's in a uh, procedural clinic in the operating room or even someone in the middle of a Nigerian jungle. In the where field. They, exactly. Exactly. We want to make it easy. They send it to one of our Polarity TE manufacturing facilities, a variety of them nationwide, and we can actually process it, turn it around, and give it back to that patient and that provider within 24 to 48 hours, depending on what their time requirement is, and they would treat it just like they would a natural, normal skin graft, whether it be split thickness or full thickness. We don't want people to change the way that they sort of treat or dress these types of things. We want to change the technology of the deployment vector and the mechanisms that we have sort of embodied in this platform to regenerate full thickness skin with all of its layers, with hair, so that it functions and looks just like the patient's own skin because it is the patient's own skin. Own skin. So I'm taking – how small are the samples that I'm, I'm taking? Yep. With all things in biology, everything's always variable. But what we like to say is, uh, let's say someone has a 10% total body surface area, TBSA, burn. We would say usually for a burn like that, you would take about one square centimeter of their own tissue itself. They would send it in this all-inclusive box system. We would process it and get it back to them. And they would deploy it very similar to sort of like uh, cake icing through a syringe that looks almost like a paste. You kind of lay it out. That's exactly right. 
and for people who aren't familiar with centimeters, it's sort of the width of you, the tip of your finger. That's exactly right. You know, it's just sort of like a square like that. You've got to get that much. Yep. And then you send them back a paste. Yep. And that paste can be laid over areas. Yep. And so the larger the the larger the burn, the more the paste. Right, it's exactly. Totally one for one. Yep. And you do this in 24 to 48 hours? Yep. We turn it around and give it to them within 24 to 48 hours. Most of that time's actually accounted for in the shipping side of it. You know, we can't make uh, uh, shipping groups move any faster. Uh, if we did have to be at, uh, at a site or a forward operating center in case there was ever a military uh, involvement, we could always turn it around even quicker than something like that uh, using our ISO 5 hood systems. But uh, we typically say 24 to 48 hours, depending on what the physician would require for timing. Where are you on the steps to approval? And yeah. I wouldn't even know what 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 you're getting approved here. Is it a device, a drug, yeah. a treatment, a what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. There are a variety of products that are out there. And as you're aware, you know, one end of the spectrum are things like therapeutics, then there are biologics, then there are devices. There's also a category called HCTP, human cell tissue product pathways. Groups like uh, the uh, life cell alloderm uh, product that's out there, cadaveric dermis, also a group uh, oxygen, sort of these cadaveric nerve uh, uh, conduits. Uh, Memetics makes an Amnion product called Epifix. Epifix, or Memetics, is actually founded by one of our board of directors who's on uh, the polarity board. We are utilizing autologous, meaning from the patient for the patient, homologous, meaning skin for skin, in a minimally manipulated manner that allows us to sort of comply with HCTP, human cell tissue product pathways, which allows us to get the product on patients very quickly without having to go through the three-phase trial that's typically seen in biologics, uh, you know, class three devices or therapeutics. So we can turn this product around very quickly, uh, get it to market uh, probably within uh, the next uh, upcoming quarter one or quarter two of this upcoming year. Like right now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, if you were burned today, we could try to put this product on you today uh, utilizing uh, one of our FDA registration documents to get it on you so that we can treat your burn or your wound with your own tissue as quickly as you need it. This is going to change treatment of burns. Uh, I hope it does, and I hope it extends into a variety of other types of uh, regenerative medicine uh, markets and tissue substrates because it's really a platform. But our goal is to completely change the way that burn patients are treated acutely and what their life and their outcome is like later on. Denver, Dr. Love. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it was my pleasure. I hope you come back and update us. Yeah, no, absolutely. We come out to the Bay Area and visit you, or we'd be happy to have you come out to Salt Lake and see the facility. We'd love it. Dr. Denver Lowe is the president and CEO of Polarity TE. More information is available at polaritytee.com. That's Polarity and the letters T and E. Polaritytee.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.